When I say the name Kanye West, what thoughts do you have? We were just listening to a little bit of his newest album there as I approached. I like having entrance music. This is going to be my new thing. But Kanye is a cultural influencer, and he has changed his approach a number of ways over the years. First and foremost, he was a music producer. He produced albums by Jay-Z, Alicia Keys, Janet Jackson. I first learned about him through College Dropout, and I will say I did really like that album. And that is when he was more of a solo artist and people became um, knowing him as a singer. But now a lot of people might have first learned about him as an interrupter because if we want to go to the next slide, this lovely, love the way this is captured here, MTV Music Awards 2004, I believe it was, he says, hold on, I'm going to let you finish, but I have to say, Beyonce's album. So there's this whole interruption of Taylor Swift that cracked everybody up because we're like, it is the MTV Awards. I'm pretty sure they give the award to whoever shows up. Like this is pre-planned marketing scheme here. So it was so entertaining, but he always gets attention with whatever he does. He collaborated with Jay-Z. He is an outspoken promoter and he is a confident man. He once said, my biggest regret is that I cannot see myself perform. That is confidence, right? I need some of that confidence. But you know what's really freaking me out is that some younger generations know him now as Kim Kardashian's husband. That just cracks me up. It's a whole new world. It's a new paradigm for me to see Kanye in this, this light. I will say, if you know the other interesting change he made in his life. He became an outspoken supporter of Trump. That baffled some people. I really like this, this caption of this picture of him right here. So he said a lot of things, but the most recent in November or end of October, he released a worship album. Now, he has gone around doing Sunday services across the country, and they are worship services with a full choir. He invites local preachers. He met with Joel Osteen. And so now we see him in this new light, Jesus is King. And I read a review of someone who went to one of his uh, Sunday services saying that he really was less of a focal point. You know, it wasn't a concert that he did seem to pull himself back and allow the, the music and the worship to shine. But, as you might suspect, because of all these things he said and all these personas he's had, people have been a little skeptical. Is this just another marketing scheme? Is just some new way to make money? Or is he sincere? Because he says he's become a born-again Christian. So, some people have been skeptical. Now, I bring up Kanye, I could have brought up many different examples because you probably have people that you think of when I say, whose faith are you skeptical about? Because there's people who say and do things and then when they say they believe in God and follow Jesus, it doesn't always line up. But then sometimes it does. Sometimes it's so hard to put aside who they were that we can't believe who they want to become. And that's the perspective I want us to look at our scripture today. Because sometimes we look in the Bible and we already know the end of the story. And we forget what people really would have thought of this person as they lived. 
Now, the person we're going to talk about today did way worse things, way more polarizing than Kanye. But I just want us to come to this perception to say that this person had a reputation. And I want us to look at his story from that point before we find out what he becomes. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts, uh, mainly 9, a little bit the end of 7 today. Because our story, we've been looking through Acts, looking at the beginning of the church and realizing it's messy. It is not prim and proper like we would imagine church to be. People are not dressed in their Sunday best and putting on a good show. This is the heart of true humanity, people trying to figure out how to live for Jesus. And they're living in a very dangerous culture where people are not agreeing with their faith. And this is going to be an example of that. Last week, Steve preached about Stephen, and he is the first person that we read about in the New Testament who was martyred, died because simply of what he believed. Now, when Stephen was arrested, the religious leaders themselves were so angry by his preaching that they dragged him out of the city, and they threw rocks at him until he died. I cannot fathom what that looked like. But in chapter 7, verse 58, there is this chilling phrase. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. What does this symbolize, this moment? These are people destroying a life. They took off their coats to have a better throwing arm. And they laid them at this one person's feet. Later in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1, it said, And Saul approved of their killing him. This is someone who watched and thought this was a good idea. Let's keep reading. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So now picture this. They call him a young man, and, and scholars think that that would be anywhere from age 24 to 40 at this point, just bursting into houses in Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine being a follower of Jesus and the panic that you had anytime you heard a noise outside? Would you think that someone was going to rat you out and point out your house to him? There was such fear. I mean, Saul took the opportunity of Stephen dying, and he was like, this is a starting point. Let's go. And he used it to make, bring about great persecution. Look at that in this verse. Great persecution. It says he tried to destroy the church. That's not just some disagreement of beliefs. That is physically going after people. I can't imagine the threats that people would fall asleep just imagining him whispering in their ear, this hatred. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So now Saul is going to take his show on the road. 
He is not satisfied with just persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem. Since he started, and it said in those previous verses that they scattered, right? So he's decided, I'm going to go town to town now and find all the people that I scattered. That is how determined he was. That is a bit overwhelming to think that he was doing this, that he was going out of his way, that he took steps. Look, he went to the high priest to get permission. He was seeking authority for his actions. He wasn't just like acting out of a quick rage. This was planned. This was calculated. And we read later in other scriptures from Saul himself that you know why he did this? He said, I did this because I thought I was honoring God. Isn't that a very strange thing to consider? He thought he was doing it to honor God, to imprison people, to kill people. And why that might seem so odd, yet it doesn't. Look in our world today and how many wars have been started, how many people imprisoned, enslaved, detained because of false convictions, because of people who were sure that they were doing the right thing. And you know what? This week, as I was just rereading this scripture, I thought, I got a little scared. What if that was me? I mean, I'm not seeing myself as harming anyone, but the hatred planted there that motivated Saul, I mean, I've got some problems with some people. Am I letting it dwell in my heart? Am I letting it build up? I think about things that I used to feel so confident about in the past. Ways that I saw the world until I learned more, until I matured, until God opened my eyes and brought people into my life who believed in him and came from completely different backgrounds. And then I realized there's more to God's word than what I was seeing before. I read it in different ways now. And I think, what if I had taken some action on those previous convictions? And then where are my blind spots now? Because I've got them. I'm human. I think it's just humbling to go back and pray and say, God, as believers, are we following your truth? And I feel like that's what we need to keep asking ourselves. Saul was so sure he was right. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now Saul was so bent on destruction, I imagine, is that why God did something so big to get his attention? And I love that Jesus didn't just say, hey, you're persecuting my followers. No, he said, you're doing this to me. Look me in the eye and tell me why. While Saul was being confronted, 
I like the way this biblical commentator described it. That he was living in a kind of spiritual darkness, no less real than the physical darkness. Is that why God used darkness to get his attention? To say, this is where your convictions have led you. Because Saul was trying to serve God and he thought that if people believed in Jesus and Jesus claimed to be God, then they must be doing something that blasphemed him. All the way he was raised his whole life was to serve God. And here people are saying, but Jesus brought a new way. That's why Jesus said, you're not just persecuting others, you are persecuting me. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done your holy people. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So God brought someone else into this story. And part of me wonders why. Because couldn't he just fix Saul the way he did it in the first place, like flash of light? But I think he was trying to bring someone else into the picture. Maybe for two reasons. Maybe because... Ananias needed to be told directly, you can trust this guy. He had legitimate concerns. It wasn't just like, okay, this man is against my beliefs in some way. He was dangerous. Ananias didn't want to suffer any more than the next person. So I think God needing to reveal directly to a person and say, okay, you can trust him now, I promise. But number two is I wonder if Saul needed to see that, hey, I'm changing your perspective, and there's already a community of believers out here, and you're going to need them, and they're going to need you, because God made us for community. Now, God said he had a plan that was beyond what Saul was thinking, but he notes, while Saul, the rest of his life would glorify Jesus, it would not be easy. It says, I will show him just how much he will have to suffer in my name. So what did Ananias do? He went into the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul became a changed man. And I, we're going to explore more about his change later on in our series. But right now, I want to look at Ananias. Because I see two things here. First, it says that Ananias placed his hands on Saul. Now, in the Old Testament, it would say that leaders would place their hands, they would place their hands on an animal as a sacrifice. They would place their hands on a person and commission them for leadership. It was a, a giving of something or someone to God. So here in this moment, it was an affirmation that God was setting Saul apart for greater things. But I have to think, 
because God made us with all of our senses. And I have to think there was something also about that touch. Now I know some people here aren't big on hugging or physical contact and that's fine. I don't love shaking hands, just to let you know that. It's kind of weird. Um, I'm more of a germaphobe, so I'm worried about where hands have been, mine or yours. Um, but I do like a hug or like a touch on the arm. I don't know, there's something about, there was a connection there. And I hate to, to see that touch has gotten negative or used so poorly when I think that God has created our senses in order to draw us together. And so this touch was this trust. Ananias was getting up close and saying, I'm willing to be this close to you and treat you as family. Because that's the second thing. If you see, he says, Brother Saul. We've talked about how the church was started in people's homes. They shared all their possessions, we're told. They ate meals together. They were family. They called one another brother and sister. So for Ananias to use this term, it was quite specific, quite purposeful to say, I'm letting you in. I'm inviting you into this family. You are my brother now. Now, I do love that Ananias could question God. Did you see that? Like God had a conversation. He wasn't just commanding. And I like that he involves us as part of his story. And you may know the rest of Saul's story because we're told that Saul had another name, Paul. <laughs> I have to tell you this. It wasn't until I was restudying it. I was like, yeah, I think God gave saw a new name Paul, right? No, clearly I learned that wrong. Apparently he already had two different names. Paul was his Roman name. And for the rest of the Bible, most of the rest of it, we're going to read about Paul. Now, perhaps he went by that name because he was ministering in the Gentile world and that was a more common name. Perhaps he was just ready to be done with the name Saul and all that it entailed for him, all those memories. We're not sure, but Paul, you've probably heard of. And you likely know that he would coach young church leaders, or he would help church plants and teach people how to grow in their faith. And so it might be easy to think of them as this great leader. But here, we clearly see before he was respected, he was reviled. And before he did all this good for the Lord, he did so much bad. And you know why I think it matters? I think it matters because we can relate. Because as Saul watched Stephen die, as he approved of imprisoning people for Jesus' sake, this commentator that I quoted before said, Beautifully, He was not beyond redemption, for no one is beyond the reach of God. Now, I'm filled with thoughts and memories of the things that should discount me. I don't know about you, but it's easier to remember the wrongs that I've done all the time rather than the rights. The ways I've hurt people with my words and actions, those are the things that come up to my mind at night. Yet this story is just one example where God says, I can forgive that. I can use you if you come back to me. No one is beyond the reach of God. 
Do you feel discounted when God is ready to count you in? Do you, are you concerned that others have greater faith than you or the things that you've done have disqualified you? While it's fine for us to learn from our past, we don't have to dwell there. God is ready to use us, no matter how great of a person of faith we think we are. It just takes a small mustard seed of faith, Jesus said. And if there's junk in our lives right now, which I'm sure there all is, God has this reminder that no one is beyond the reach of him, and he is ready to use us. But let's come to him before he has to get our attention in the way he did with Saul. But unfortunately, with this same grace that no one is beyond the reach of God, that means it's the same truth for people that we despise. And that's the hard part for me. Because hoping for someone to change when I absolutely do not like them is a hard prayer to pray. And actually just this week I had to confront that in my own extended family when I was asked to pray for someone who has hurt me. And it was, I don't even know that I could pray words. It's not easy, and yet we're asked to hope. We're asked to live in the truth. It's such a weird line. It's such a weird gray area because, yes, people should be held accountable for their actions. Saul was held accountable. No one said killing and imprisoning people was good. But yet we have to hope. And I can only imagine that that's what the believers had to do who were imprisoned. Back then and even now, people we know who are in dire situations, the only way they can survive is to see the darkness but have hope that God can change and bring light. And it may not be through us. There may be lines we have to draw that there are people in our lives who have hurt us and it is dangerous to draw it close. He doesn't have to use you to fix everyone. But we can have such hope. When we speak up for what is right, we can also hope that our words will bring change. So a few months ago, I met a minister, Mike Todd, who is out in Oklahoma. And I was a part of this leadership group, and we had these, this entire day with him to learn about how he pastors. He preaches to a church of thousands, and he has an even bigger following online. And when I was scrolling through his Instagram feed, I saw that he had a picture of himself with Kanye. And I read more into his story, and he had gone to a Sunday service and met him there. But he said he had forgotten something that had happened. He said, Transformation Church was a part of seven days of prayer and fasting. And one night, I had a strong prompting to pray for celebrities that I'd never done that before. I specifically prayed for Kanye, among others, that these people would hear the truth of the gospel, accept God's grace, repent from sin, and be a light in the world for Jesus. Now, I'm not claiming that my prayers alone were the reason for Kanye's awakening, but I do want you to know and believe that the passionate, consistent prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 5, 16. 
Now I met him and he is on fire for God and I can imagine that he prayed just as fervently for these people he did not know as he had prayed for his own family. And it just reminded me, it just reminded me, it's the same God, he's here with all of us and he's ready to work on people who are in the spotlight and he is ready to work on people who you may never know. But the same grace that no one is beyond the reach of God, I want to believe it for myself, I want to believe it for you, so I have to also believe it for people that I don't like. And that's my challenge for us this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that anyone's heart can be changed. And it's hard for us to not be skeptical because we can't see inside the hearts of other people. But we know that you will give us wisdom to know the lines that we should draw, to know the convictions that we need to speak up about, and to know the hope that we need to have for others. Please work on our hearts, Lord, that we can continue to hope for the light, even in this darkness. Amen.